daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China and Germany have agreed to expand market access after resuming high-level talks in Frankfurt. How significant is this for both sides? China has rejected the report released by the U.S. State Department that accuses China of spreading disinformation globally. China says the report is in itself disinformation. The U.S. government has avoided a shutdown as the Congress passed a short-term funding bill. But what happens next? First, on today's show, China and Germany have agreed to boost financial policy cooperation, oppose trade protectionism, and promote a transparent and non-discriminatory multilateral trading system. The two sides made the joint statement on Sunday as high-profile delegations met in Frankfurt to discuss the future of the bilateral financial relationship. Peter Oliver reports from Berlin. The delegations, headed up by Chinese Vice Premier He Lifang and German Finance Minister Christian Lindner, met through the night Saturday into Sunday morning. And there was an awful lot for them to talk about. The last time these two nations met at this level was way back in January 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic, before the conflict in Ukraine and with an entirely different German government. The two leaders talked about global economic recovery and agreed that the mechanisms already in place with the World Bank and IMF were the best way to help developing nations. Expansion of market access between Germany and China was front and center, particularly when it came to banking and investment. Investing in China by German firms in R&B was also heavily talked about, as was cooperation when it came to fighting financial crimes. And there was also heavy hints that we're going to be seeing a lot more of these meetings in the future. Both sides are determined to expand market access options and create a level playing field, i.e. competitive conditions. This creates opportunities on both sides for more responsible action and investments. Germany's economy is stagnating right now. The latest government-commissioned forecasts, including those by Lindner's ministry, suggest a 0.6% decline in GDP for 2023. That casts Germany well off the EU average of 0.8% growth. Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng told the media that Germany and China could find mutually beneficial solutions by working together. Both sides believe that economic cooperation contributes to the development of both countries and that strengthening economic relations can lead to a win-win situation. Both sides emphasized that they would work together to preserve the stability and security of global supply chains and to position themselves resolutely against decoupling. It has been too long since they last met at this level. That's the takeaway from this meeting. Last year, trade between Germany and China was worth almost $300 billion. And if Germany is to weather the current financial choppy waters it finds itself in, a close partnership with China may well be essential. That's Peter Oliver reporting. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Joe Mee, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Dr. Joe, thanks for joining us. The talks were the first China-Germany high-level financial dialogue in four years. How significant is it and how do you look at the key outcomes of the dialogue? 
Yeah, in my understanding that in the past several years, there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, very surprising or impact on the bilateral cooperation between China and Germany as uh, both are the main manufacturing countries. I do believe that there are a lot of connections between our two countries. So after the three years of pandemic, I think that we return to almost the normal track and the discussion between China and Germany will be very important, not only uh, by the bilateral relationship, but trying to send some signals to the world that we can do more and we can cooperate not only on the manufacturing, but also on the financial areas and monetary policies. Mm -hmm. Well, the talks took place at a time when both countries were managing the risks of economic downturns. So how, what do you make of the key challenges that China and, and Germany are currently addressing and how their cooperation aims to mitigate these challenges? Yeah, as I said, that both countries are manufacturing countries, so we are trying to produce the products for the world, for the different consumers from different countries. Well, in the past several years, we see a lot of changes about the global supply chains. Some countries are trying to interfere with this global supply chain by strengthening its own supply chains. I think it's a kind of measures that, you know, the other countries may not feel so safe in this regard. So I think that both countries of China and Germany, we can work together trying to enhance the uh, the supply chains between us while they're also playing a very important role in the global supply chains. We are trying to make some normal principles and trying to strengthen the cooperation between us or for the innovative ways. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you said, uh, this joint statement mentioned uh, ensuring th- smooth supply chains. Um, I mean, uh, what specific measures do you think can be taken to achieve such goals? Yeah, for the strengthen of the supply chain, I think that both countries have a very strong suppliers and the suppliers can do more coordination about the production, about the forecast, about their abilities to, to adapt to the world. So actually, uh, the, there are also some kind of complementary cooperation like in the in the car making industries or in other uh, electronics and also many other areas. So the policies, uh, I mean, uh, coordinated by this two countries are trying to send some signals to the market that they can do more to cooperate in the information and the exchange of their ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, Germany aims to strengthen Frankfurt as a European hub for financial services. Um, how do you think it's going to achieve that goal? And uh, what what role could China play in this process? Yeah, uh, I've been to uh, Frankfurt several times, and I I think that that city is very famous for the financial centers. There's many the foreign banks settling there and trying to deal with uh, the clearance about the investment in the financial levels. So you know, uh, as uh, the news has just mentioned, that China and Germany is trying to do more about the RMB clearance in in Frankfurt, and that is also very important to connect not only the banks or financial institution of Germany, but also from other investors, other banks like from US or UK. So we can try to do more innovative ways to to like for the uh, some of uh, new debt in the RMB or trying to make the offshore RMB clearance or exchanges and providing better financial products to the com- companies that is uh, uh, very important for them to meet their demand. 
<laughs> well, China's ambassador has recently urged Germany and Europe to be more open to Chinese electric vehicles and 5G technology. Uh, so how are developments in the tech sector impacting China-Germany economic relations? And what could be the implications of uh, Germany's plans regarding Chinese supplied component in its telecom networks? Yeah, I have to say that in the past decades, China has learned a lot from Germany about how can we make the cars and how can we make a better management on the technicals and management of the team. So we are we have very intensive cooperation in our two countries. But now we see there are some new areas, some new fields that China is a, a little bit maybe more capable of doing the things with a massive production and a better or in more intelligent ways of producing those products. So in this regard, I would see that both countries can do more to trying to make the better use of their own advantages and trying to make a better connection with the resources that they are capable of. Well, we are still trying to uh, f- fix the problems of the climate change and addressing the, you know, the like the alleviating the poverty or many many global challenges and both countries can do much more in cooperating in this regard. So there are so many things that the manufacturing countries can do, but we are still trying to do more like for the services, cooperation, the integration of services and manufacturing. So I, I believe there are so many fields that we can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese ambassador also mentioned that some European think tanks and experts have portrayed China as the source of risk to the global economy. I mean, where does such kind of misconception come from? I think that uh, maybe from the the reason why we are they, they will believe that maybe coming from some of them coming from the U.S. opinion, some U.S. think tanks or the you know even the leaders are trying to see that uh, China is a. Uh, a source of the risk. Well, some of them are also have some uh, fear about, uh, the, you know, the 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 hypothesis or the imagined way of China because China is getting stronger and we are getting better in the ways of uh, dealing with uh, different issues. So they they are thinking of that, but I don't think that is necessary because China is also is always doing what we are doing in the past decades. We are also trying to address the challenges with other countries, not by the unilateral ways of dealing with the situation. So we cooperate with other countries. So the think tanks, maybe we do need more exchange of the ideas and more communication will reduce uh, the misunderstanding about the way that China is playing in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's reported that um, financial dialogues uh, like this may happen more frequently in the future. I mean, in what ways do you think such kind of dialogue um, can contribute to the broader economic relations and also partnerships between China and Germany? Yeah, China and Germany, we are the main players in the both regions, like in Europe, like in China, in Asia. So I think that these countries are very important, uh, the trade hub for uh, many trade, international trade in goods, trade in services. So what we can do is trying to strengthen our position as a hub or the center of the regions. While the cooperation between the regions are increased very quickly, I have to say that developed based on the 
not only the willingness of the, the government, but also the, the technology development. So they are uh, there are much more possibilities for both countries to try to think about. Like you, you mentioned about the financial areas, about the RMB. There are more countries are trying to do with that, and they need have a better mechanism to deal with that. So these two countries can expand their cooperation in quite a wide range of areas. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Dr. Joe Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has rejected a report released by the U.S. State Department that accuses China of investing billions of dollars to spread disinformation globally. China's foreign ministry said the report is in itself disinformation as it misinterprets facts, adding that it is the U.S. that invented the weaponizing of the global information space. The ministry said the U.S. State Department is engaged in propaganda and infiltration in the name of global engagement. For more, we are now joined on the line by Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Victor, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so first of all, how do you look at this um, U.S. State Department report that accuses the Chinese government of expanding disinformation efforts? And why does China say the report is disinformation itself? First of all, if we look at what the United States government has been saying over the past few years in particular, then as far as China is concerned, such representations coming out of Washington about China are fabrications, distortions of facts, compounding back with white, for example, and nothing is true or accurate or pragmatic or realistic about what is exactly happening on the ground. For example, talking about the situation involving Hong Kong, in the United States, there was a storming of the Capitol Hill, and the United States government is accusing those who participate in the storming of the Capitol Hill as uh, rebellious, for example, as seditious, etc. However, when the United States talked about those people in Hong Kong who stormed the Lechco building, they call these people pro-democracy activists. And they accused China of doing the wrong thing when China wanted to stabilize the situation, achieve peace and stability for the benefits of the people in Hong Kong. So if you put this in contrast, you will know that the United States is talking about one thing in one line, one color, when it is concerning the United States. And it's talking about China in completely different lines, confounding facts, distorting facts, fabricating things. Therefore, I think the Chinese government is accurate and correct in accusing the United States of spreading misinformation as far as China is concerned. And the United States really needs to set the record straight as to what exactly are the facts on the ground and why the United States is so eager to distort facts about China because they want to put China down as if doing that there will be no consequences. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese foreign ministry says um, it is the U.S. that invented the weaponizing of the global information space, and it also used the term perception warfare on, in, in the statement. So what exactly does the term mean in the context of international relations? 
Well, first of all, I think the United States has a lot of uh, impact and still carries a lot of weight as far as international public opinion is concerned. First of all, it, ha- it is the dominant military power. Secondly, it has tremendous of amount of investments in media of all kinds, public as well as uh, private, and also controlling the media in the English language uh, sphere of influence. It really means a lot. However, the United States really should be pragmatic and realistic rather than distorting facts at will. Because otherwise, the United States may be guilty of misinformation or mislabeling the situation and distorting the situation on the ground. There are many, many examples of that. For example, when the United States invaded Iraq, the leaders of the United States fabricated the fact, accusing Iraq of being involved in weapons of mass destruction. As it turned out, there was no weapons of mass destruction to be found in Iraq, and the United States' war against Iraq was a war of injustice, fabrication, without any merits behind it. Now, there are so many examples, but as far as China is concerned, China has been developing with the hard labor and ingenuity and creativity of the people, rather than, for example, raping the United States or stealing jobs from the United States. I think the United States blaming China will not solve the United States problems, and it is not being able to mislead the world because people in the world, countries in the world, have their own eyes and ears and brains to make their own judgment. But the United States is so eager to fabricate all these things about China, to tell lies about China, try to mislead the people, misguide the people in the world. And I think this is the typical form of misinformation and try to fool the world as if they possess the total truth. Yes, and apart from the past instances of um, the U.S. disinformation campaigns that you have just mentioned, uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry also mentioned uh, U.S. Senator Rand Paul's acknowledgement that the U.S. government is a major propagator of disinformation. So could you provide more context on uh, Senator Rand Paul's statement and how they relate to the current debate over disinformation? Well, I would say among the more than 500 members of Congress, both in the Senate as well as in the House of Representatives, there are indeed some members of Congress who still have the minimum amount of decency and integrity, for example. They can still call a spade a spade. And many people actually in the uh, U.S. uh, Congress still want to really understand China as it is and try to engage with China. And it is encouraging to see that Senator Schumer of New York is lining up a visit to China and some other members of the Congress are joining him. And I would say for such members of Congress who have the courage and vision and integrity and decency of the mind to try to engage China as it is, try to see through the the veils and uh, the fabrications and disinformation and lies and all the other distortions uh, created by Washington, for example, to see China as it is. It is a good, noble, worthwhile endeavor, and I hope this will promote better understanding between China and the United States. So I hope 
there are indeed decent members of Congress in Washington who can rise up to the occasion to be responsible to history as well as to the realities in the world of today and speak in terms of truth rather than fabrication of truth and be opposed to misinformation and try their best to advocate the truth and the realities and the true representations of what China is and what China stands for. Okay, so what do you think could be um, really behind this um, dis- disinformation campaign against China? And how does that fit into the broader geopolitical rivalry between the two countries? I think Washington is suffering from two nightmares combined into one. On the one hand, Washington worries that China's steady economic growth will eventually lead to China surpassing the size of the U.S. economy, which will happen in due time, in probably less than 10 years' time. Now, the second nightmare is that Washington worries that once China surpasses the size of the U.S. economy, China wants to be the top dog in the world. China wants to push U.S. aside from the center of the world stage and try to become the next top dog of the world. Now, these two things are completely Illogical. On the one hand, China's steady economic development is inevitable. No one can stop that. Sooner or later, China will be larger as an economy than that of the United States, measured by official exchange rate. But on the other hand, either in the past, present, or in the future, China will never want to be the next superpower or the top dog in the world. China wants to treat all the other countries as an equal, more than 200 of them, including the United States. And China will never. Impose its ideology or political system or ways of doing things or its own values onto other countries, China will deal with them as equals. Therefore, combined these two, combining these two nightmares into one lethal nightmare, Washington wants to uh, do whatever it can, try to derail China's economic development and try to weaken China, try to throw huge wedges into China. And misinformation or disinformation is a weapon that the United States wants to do, try to spread about lies about China and distort people's perceptions about China and try to weaken China, either China's overall strength or China's international image. And in doing so, the overall design is clear. The United States wants to weaken China, bring China down, as if there will be no consequences, either economically speaking or in terms of technological blockade and sanctions, or in terms of arms race or display of military might. And they believe that they can get away with that. With that. But on the Chinese side, we are very firm in pursuing peaceful strategy of development and fully integrate, full integration with the rest of the world and treat all countries in the world, big or small, as an equal. Okay, so one last question, very briefly. What role do you think Western media outlets is playing in this, this whole uh, disinformation campaign against China? When we talk about Western media, I think it is very pitiful and very sorrowful that few Western media agencies now can rise up to the occasion and speak the truth about what's happening in China. It seems that there were a magic lantern originating from Washington or somewhere, which dictated 
key talking point to Western media. So they are talking more or less in chorus about what's happening in China, mostly in distorted terms, not reflecting the realities on the ground, etc. And more or less, they are highly uh, coordinated, seemingly have some voice behind them to coordinate these Western media agencies. I hope the Western media agencies will do justice to their profession. Mm -hmm. That is to speak the truth, to be realistic and pragmatic. Yes. to be honest to their own profession rather than losing their own conscience. Yeah, thank you, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. This is World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Turkey has carried out airstrikes targeting Kurdish militants in northern Iraq just hours after the Kurdistan Workers' Party claimed responsibility for deadly bombing in Ankara. The Turkish Defense Ministry said it destroyed 20 targets of the PKK, including caves, bunkers, shelters, and warehouses. The PKK, which is classified as a terrorist organization by Turkey, earlier said it was behind the blast outside Turkey Interior Ministry building that left one dead and two injured. For more, my colleague Anna spoke with Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Professor Wang, could you provide more details about the recent Turkish airstrikes in northern Iraq? And how do you look at the significance of this operation in the ongoing conflict with the PKK? Uh, well, unfortunately, I got also the information from the reports. So according to some other reports, the sources of other reports that uh, the Turkish airstrikes targets uh, about 20 targets, attracted more than 20 targets in northern Iraq, including some, for example, the shelters, the caves uh, that belonging to the PKK in the northern Iraq. I wanted to, to stress that actually the strike is a very continuation of uh, Turkey's efforts in striking and uh, targeting the northern Iraq's PKK's presence there, because actually during the past year, especially after the year of 2014 or 2015, the PKK's presence in the northern Iraq actually grows significantly and also maintains its presence there, although against the pressure from Turkey, because local Iraqi Kurdish government, they are not able to and are not very willing to control the, the, the presence of the PKK in the northern Iraq. And also the, the presence of, of PKK in the northern Iraq become a very important factor affecting the bilateral relations between uh, Turkey and uh, Iraq. So I think the very operation against the PKK's presence, especially the, the 20 targets in northern Iraq, actually could be perceived as a continuation of the Turkey's concerning over this region, as well as Turkey's interests, as well as the future's targets in northern Iraq, the PKK presence there. Professor, according to the Turkish government, the airstrikes came after the bomb attack in Ankara. They identified one of the attackers as a member of the PKK. Do you think the recent incident have any impact or influence on the government's stance and approach toward the PKK? Uh, sure, definitely it will, because traditionally, uh, Turkey government has already taken a very, very uh, harsh stance over the PKK. Uh, for example, define the Turkey as the so-called terrorist group and uh, hopes to utilize its diplomatic pressure to force the PKK's 
the organizations and the branches in some Western countries to be eliminated. The pressure comes from the Turkey's political organization as well as the diplomatic missions to persuade the local governments from, uh, for example, Sweden, from Germany, to persuade them to eliminate the PKK's presence there. And also they utilize the military and uh, very strong measures through, for example, airstrikes like this time, as well as the military operations in northern Syria and the northern Iraq hopes to deter the possible attacks implemented from PKK inside Turkey's territory. So I think after this strike, we call this strike, we call it so-called terrorist attacks from the PKK. It actually targets the Turkey's the important city and as well as Turkey's important political tar- target. So it will provoke Turkey's anger on the one hand, as well as Turkey's willingness to implement much more harsher policies against the PKK's presence, not only inside Turkey, not only in its neighboring countries, but also in other Western countries. So I think in the future, Turkey for sure will take much harsher measures against the PKK. Then given the long-standing conflict between Turkey and the PKK, how do these recent events fit into the broader context of the Kurdish struggle for self-determination in the region? Uh, PKK, of course, is a very important uh, so-called terrorist organization defined by Turkey. And struggle between Turkey government as well as PKK could be perceived as a continuation of the crisis of Turkey's national identity. As you mentioned, that Turkey, after its independence in the 1920s, is hoped to define itself as the very nation with the only political identity and the national identity of so-called Turkish. Uh, but then there were some other minority groups inside the country. So from the the official records. They hope to define these minorities as the mountainous Turkish uh, or, or the Turkish group who has already forgotten their mother language. So the fact led to a decade of conflict and the crisis which entered the peak in the 1970s and 1980s when the PKK grows and as a very, very strong opponent inside Turkey's territory against the Turkish government through its military opposition. When we're talking about this kind of new wave of the conflict, I think we cannot forget the historical background. Mm-hmm. This struggle uh, between the Turkey government and the Kyush struggle for their own culture, for their own uh, political identity, for their own political aspirations cannot be ignored in the future, especially after this wave of strikes on the one hand by the so-called PKK's actions inside the Turkey territory and, and on the other hand by the Turkey's military operations overseas against the PKK's presence there. Professor, could you please elaborate more on the historical background explaining why Turkey does not recognize the Kurdish national identity and has labeled the PKK as a terrorist group? Yeah, the identity of the PKK or identity of the Kurdish uh, groups inside Turkey, uh, we, uh, we cannot talk about it without mentioning, without discussing the identity of Turkey, because Turkey, modern Turkey, was established, as we stressed it, in the 1920s as the backdrop of the Turkey's gained its national independence through military operations against the interventions, the foreign interventions from Italy, from France, from Britain, from Greece, and other Western powers. So against that backdrop, the Turkey hopes to maintain a very, very strong power to maintain its independence and the national dignity through the national unity. 
So that is why uh, Turkey, against this backdrop, they didn't and still does not recognize the Kurdish as the minority group because that will lead to much more possible crisis inside the country. But even that, uh, when we are talking about PKK, we cannot forget that there were other different branches of the Kurdish group who uh, with the struggle, with the aspiration for self, the cultural preservation rights and the self political preservation rights. There were some other political branches who hopes to cooperate with Turkey governments. But then there were some group like PKK who hopes to adopt the very, very assertive or even aggressive measures against the Turkey government to hope to gain or to realize their national independence and the cultural independence political goals. That's the very major background of the Turkey government's relations with Kurdish and also that's with the PKK. Then, Professor Gibbon, what has been talked about? How do you anticipate the international response to the recent Turkish airstrike and conflict with the PKK? Are there any diplomatic efforts being made to address the situation and promote peace in the region? I think that the diplomatic reactions from the international society might be divided into two camps. On the one hand, some camps might express their concerns and some of them even express their criticism. For example, I think that some Western countries, under the pressure of their local Kurdish social groups and political groups, I think they will express their concerns and even express or criticize them against the Turkish foreign operation, because we cannot forget Turkey. It is a kind of the retaliation that airstrikes outside its borders. So it's, to some extent, it's illegal. It is, cannot be accepted, especially under the, some standards of the Western countries. Uh, well, on the other hand, I think most uh, states in the international society, they hope to uh, persuade uh, Turkey uh, to maintain peace, to maintain rational, and not to provoke the tension further. Uh, so that is why, against this backdrop, it will actually influence Turkey's relations with its neighboring countries, especially with Iraq. Because we cannot forget that Turkey has implemented this airstrike inside Iraq's territory. Although it is the northern Iraq where the region is targeted, uh, was located in the northern Iraqi's Kurdish autonomous region, but it is still the part of the Iraqi's national territory. So I think in the future it will lead to further diplomatic crisis between Iraq, central government, and Turkey, and also will lead to much more crisis between other uh, Arab states with Turkey. So I think it will lead to uh, the set of responses uh, by from the international society as well as from the uh, local states. So we have to continue to monitor the ongoing events and what happened next. That's Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China, speaking with my colleague Anna. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The U.S. government has avoided a shutdown. Congress passed a short-term bill ensuring funding until November 17th. The bill received overwhelming support. President Joe Biden signed it into law just minutes before a deadline. The bill excludes any new aid for Ukraine. For more, we are now joined on the line by Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Zhao, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so could you first provide an overview of the key components of this deal and what it means for the functioning of the government in the coming days? Okay, so there are a couple of uh, major components of this uh, stopgap funding bill. 
Uh, first, this funding bill only found the government until November 17th, which means six, away, six weeks away uh, from the current date. Uh, so this will not continue until the end of the year. They still need to negotiate for the next phase of the government spending. And secondly, this continual resolution only found the government at current level, meaning there's no extra funding for other programs uh, by both parties. So on the Republican Party, they want to funding for border control. And on the Democrat side, they want funding for uh, the support for Ukraine. Neither party get what they wanted. And the last one is that um, there are other bills that supposed to pass individually. However, the negotiation failed. And with this bill, uh, that does not include all the other independent spending bills. They need to negotiate down the road for all the other spending uh, for government, uh, for other government programs. So this is what uh, the U.S. government is currently spending. Yes, and, and we saw a dramatic turnaround when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy decided to put the temporary funding measure to vote. So what factors could could have influenced his decision? I think uh, basically Speaker McCarthy ran to the dead end because he tried everything and he failed almost on all those uh, measures. So he, he has nothing out of his head. The last measure is to cooperate with the Democrats and pass a legislation that has an uh, overwhelming majority uh, with his uh, own party, partial of his own party support and the Democratic support. Uh, I think at this point, because of strong resistance from his own party, the hotliners that uh, does not want to pass any bill that he suggests, that that's the only way left for, for him to do. Okay, and and as as you said, uh, this bill excluded new aid for Ukraine. So, uh, what could be the potential diplomatic consequences of this move? Well, at this point, uh, there will be no major uh, influence or impact on the current war in Ukraine because the U.S. government has uh, promised spending over a hundred billion U.S. dollars uh, this year uh, and in the future. So, right now, there's no. Uh, emergency because of no funding in this bill. However, down the road, um, because the U.S. continued to finance the war in Ukraine, and if this finance runs to the end, they need to continue to fund uh, the future uh, spending. And at this point, the Biden administration suggested that they wanted to invest another $24 billion, and the House Democrats suggested $6 billion. At this point, of course, House uh, Republicans refuse to uh, cooperate with the Democrats and continue to fund uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, so I think it, it, even though there's bipartisan support uh, in the, uh, for the war in Ukraine, however, how, in terms of how much they should spend and how to monitor the spending is still very much in question. So we have to wait until the negotiation to continue. Hmm. Okay, so President Biden called this situation a manufactured crisis created by extreme House Republicans. How do you see this characterization? Well, of course, that's partisan, because, of course, from a Biden administration's perspective, this is really unnecessary because uh, the, uh, the Republicans control the House, and if they want to, of course, they can pass the bill and move forward with the government spending. Uh, however, if you listen to the Republican side, they have their own reasons because they want a major cut on the government spending. They believe that Democrats uh, spending too much and the national debt is increasing 
in an unprecedented way, and that's uh, getting more and more pressure on the U.S. Uh, uh, government's bond market and also its ability to finance future programs. So at this point, I think both parties have their own reason uh, to uh, accuse the other side to try to shut down the government. Uh, but at this point, I don't think uh, both sides have enough reason uh, to convince the voters that uh, each side is absolutely right. Okay. Well, actually, the U.S. government has been grappling with recurring shutdown threats in recent years. What underlying issues contribute to these frequent funding crises? Well, both parties talk about principle, and on principle, they cannot yield to the other side. And anything that uh, uh, they fail to execute, they believe that they are losing their principle. So this is really fundamentally an ideological uh, divergence between the two parties, and that has been going on for decades. And only in recent uh, years that this kind of difference is getting bigger and bigger. It's getting harder and harder to to get to uh, any uh, compromise between the two sides to reach an agreement. So I think fundamentally there are many uh, core issues that they cannot agree on, and those core issues continue to vest and uh, make two sides, you know, getting further further away. One of the things that the core of this dis- dispute is about immigration. And of course, you can see that uh, the Republicans is accusing Democrats of open border, letting a flood of immigrants getting into the United States. And the Democrats is accusing uh, Republicans not to accommodate those guest workers into the country. So again, uh, issues like this, and there are many other issues that these two sides cannot get along with each other and the country is split right in the middle. So I think those issues made the political compromise uh, very difficult these days. Yeah, and and the Moody's has warned that the government shutdown standoff could damage U.S. credit worthiness. How how do we understand this, and what are the potential economic repercussions of that? It's interesting because Moody is the last institu- institution that still insists that American bond is triple A rated, because other uh, institutions like Fitch and S and P. Uh, already downgrade U.S. government bound uh, to uh, AA+. Uh, so at this point, Moody is the last institution, but they are now in question of the the, uh, the potential threat of government shutdown to the U.S. government's credit worthiness. So at this point, I think it's uh, very worrisome because this kind of shutdown, once happened, is going to have a major impact on fiscal uh, ability of the government, and, and uh, it will have a ripple effect in U.S. capital market as well as its broader economy. So down the road, as we know, right now, the U.S. inflation is still very at a very high level, and the interest rate continue to go up. So this is not a good time for a government shutdown. If they shut down and the fiscal policy becomes disoriented, then the uh, economy will have a bad, very bad outcome because of this impact. Mm-hmm. And in a broader context, how might these recurring budgetary crises impact public trust in government institutions, both domestically and internationally? Yeah, I think uh, both the uh, American uh, voters and uh, globally other countries are watching this with, with deep frustration. Because for a democracy, a mature democracy like the United States, it should have the ability to reform its political system and at least uh, control the, the negotiation process without spilling over into the uh, normal government functioning 
and also even bigger uh, spill over on the world economy. However, right now what we're seeing is that not only they cannot reach agreements, but also they let this kind of disagreement spill over into other areas that are affecting normal people's lives, affecting government's normal function, and also uh, potentially have a huge impact on global capital markets. So I think at this point, people are very frustrated. However, the problem is because the current design of the political system is so deadlocked and so polarized, there's no way to get a breakthrough. And this kind of inability for the U.S. government to solve their own problem is actually making people question whether or not the U.S. government has uh, what it takes to continue to be the leader of the world and continue to be uh, the underpinning power to sustain the current global system. Mm -hmm. So again, I think this kind of suspicion uh, makes it very dangerous uh, in the future for, for the functioning of both political and economic System globally. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy of Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. The chairs of three U.S. House Representatives Committee have demanded Ford turn over documents tied to its partnership with Chinese battery company CATL. U.S. Republicans have been probing Ford's battery plant plan for months over concerns it could facilitate the flow of U.S. tax subsidies to China and leave Ford dependent on Chinese technology. Ford has paused construction of the Michigan battery plant, but the company says it hasn't changed its intention to be among the companies leading the EV transition. For more, we are now joined by Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Andy, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Um, so how do you look at the criticism and concerns raised by Republican lawmakers regarding Ford's partnership with CATL? Well, I think this is uh, disappointing but not surprising um, in that this is a misguided political uh, attack that is really looking to, that is disconnected, uh, untethered from reality um, in that it's abundantly clear that uh, in many areas, Uh, China is the technological leader um, in electric vehicles. And the uh, moves to um, deny this reality, I think, is really counterproductive. And also, I think it also demonstrates um, just the poverty, I think, of thinking in terms of the American uh, system, in terms of what Ford is doing is a very rational uh, business decision um, to advance its own business interest and frankly uh, take positive steps to reduce uh, the impact of uh, internal combustion engines on the global environment. So it's it's uh, disappointing but not surprising. Okay, and does the government's intervention in private companies' business decisions as seen in this case Align with the principles of a market economy that the U.S. claims to value? Oh, it absolutely does not. And um, this is uh, what I mean by, uh, again, that this is disappointing, but not entirely surprising in that we've seen other instances uh, where I think the U.S. uh, abandons its rhetoric um, when it is politically advantageous 
to do so. Um, and here, of course, it is uh, not only a certain uh, hypocrisy that is revealed, but again, this is uh, hurting a major American business. And it's also setting back efforts to uh, address what many, many are concerned about in terms of climate change. Okay, so now what are the options available to Ford and and what might be the potential outcomes of this congressional inquiry? Well, we have to see. Um, Again, we know that um, the transition to a post-internal combustion engine uh, world um, is inevitable. You know, we look at other parts of the world, even in North America. I mean, look at uh, a company like BYD with its Dolphin uh, car that is doing very, very well in Mexico. And again, it's very ironic that many Americans uh, are suffering from the inability to buy uh, competitively priced automobiles. And, you know, I think one important contribution are misguided political decisions like this. That being said, uh, we also have to watch how this will play out. Uh, Ford, again, is a major uh, company. There are uh, many people, I think many institutions in the U.S. that also recognize how misguided this is. Uh, And there still might be a positive outcome. And I would... uh, Mention, say, you know, the case of TikTok here as well, where uh, under the Trump administration and uh, even under the Biden administration, there were misguided efforts to attack this company. Uh, And yet, you know, it has still found a way to do business. And given uh, Ford's uh, approach to uh, comply with certain American concerns, uh, hopefully a way will be found for them to to move forward. Mm -hmm. So how do you see this issue impacting the broader landscape um, of automotive manufacturing and the transition to electric vehicles in the U.S.? Well, this is, again, a very challenging time for the American automotive industry. Um, Workers are very concerned. The unions that represent them, of course, uh, are acting on those concerns. And that is partly driven by this transition um, to a post-ICE or internal combustion engine world. Um, So it's a difficult time for the industry. Uh, The Biden administration has claimed to prioritize uh, climate sustainability. And again, this is an effort to deny reality. And it also, I think, reflects in a way the chaotic nature of the American political system um, in that, on the one hand, the U.S. government says that climate sustainability is very important. On the other hand, there are parts of the government uh, that can work very actively to undermine this, as well as undermine American job security uh, vis-a-vis Ford. So, again, you know, to strike a more optimistic tone on this, this is uh, unfortunate, disappointing, uh, but hopefully uh, a positive uh, outcome can still be reached. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. 
And for more discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.